When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. Uh, so today I want to take some time to talk about some of the the implications of this coronavirus uh, pandemic uh, beyond just the numbers, the numbers that we see now. Because I think we have to start understanding that the numbers we see now are a nothing more than a snapshot of the past. Even the confirmed tests uh, that, that we're seeing today were tests that were done you know, probably 24 plus hours ago. Um, but even then, you know, those cases that we have today, confirmed cases here in the United States, I think upwards of 13,000 now, those have already spread it to many other individuals that soon will be positive for coronavirus. Uh, furthermore, that 13,000 is probably just a small fraction of the total amount of cases of coronavirus in the United States. You know, I think the possibility of 100,000 plus here in the United States is very real, potentially likely, maybe upwards of 200,000, maybe more. Uh, so we have to understand that that is a snapshot of the past and that we have to start acting on, on what that data is likely to be right now. And what I want to talk about today is not necessarily the worst case scenario for coronavirus, but certainly the trajectory that this is or could potentially take in the coming months, even the coming years. This is as I said in the past, potentially one of the defining events of our generation. And right now, I think 13,000 cases and, and 100 some deaths here in the United States does not do justice to what ultimately could happen in the relatively near future. So let's jump into things. I'll sort of uh, skip my, my daily update. Um, I'd actually already started recording this once and I accidentally deleted it or stopped it without saving it. And that's fine. And, and I realized I was going too long about some of these other different topics. So this will be hopefully a little bit less wordy. And, and we'll skip the daily update for today. And we'll get right into to where this is heading. Um, one of the problems with this, capturing where things are at right now, is the exponential nature of this and the lack of our testing ability here in the United States, which seems to be leveling off, maybe still increasing here and there. But but it seems as though a lot of this is still taking some time to come online. Some of this testing capacity, whether it's labs or whether it's it's swabs or reagents or test kits, whatever, that is the you know limiting um, factor in, in in testing. It's it's certainly not what it needs to be. And and part of the problem with this is that the longer and longer it takes to do all these tests and get a better idea of of where this coronavirus is it's still spreading in the background, regardless of what you're doing with tests. And what that means is if you can think of it in this sense, like a spider web, right? Uh, the idea of one individual in the middle, patient zero or whatever, you know, patient zero in Washington or New York City or whatever, and there's probably a lot more than just one patient zero, but, but they spread it to a, you know, a handful of people, depends on you know, two, five, whatever, 10 people, maybe more, maybe less. And then those individuals spread it to more people. 
and those individuals spread it to even more people, right? And this becomes like sort of a, a circle. Now, it's a really straightforward way of thinking of it. Uh, too simple, simplistic. It's it's much more complicated than that. But what I mean by this is is that it's it increases on a exponential scale, which is sort of a duh. But what that means is the individuals that need to be tested because they're potentially exposed or they live in a certain geography, a neighborhood, etc., those increase exponentially as well. So think of this again in, in terms of a circle. Imagine this, if we think of it really straightforward as, as 1 spreading to 4, 4 spreading to 16, 16 to spreading to 64, right? Just as a really straightforward. And, and think of that as a spider web, a circle that keeps growing and growing and growing. We're not, it's not so much a, a question of circumference of that circle. That's a linear idea, right? Thinking back to, to you know, equations back in, in math class, you know, to solve for the circumference of a circle. We're talking 2 times pi times r, r being radius. So if radius is 1, we have a circumference of 6.28. If radius is 2, all you do is you multiply that number that I just said by 2, so 12.57. Same is true all the way up as far as you want to go in terms of radius. If we go to a radius of 100, you're talking about a circumference of 628.32. 100 times the original circumference with a radius of 1. But that's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a problem of area. How many people are inside of that circle? And that is not a linear function. That's exponential. To solve for area of a circle, it's pi times r squared. And so what that means is that with an area of, or sorry, with a radius of 1, you have an area of 3.14, which is smaller, half of what the circumference is with a radius of 1. However, if you go to a radius of 2, that area has quadrupled to 12.57. What happens if you throw in a radius of 100? As a reminder, the circumference was, what, 628, right? With a radius of 100, the area is 31,415, right? That's the way exponential growth happens, right? And so what that means is that you have way more people than we could ever test for right now. Um, that type of testing ability is, is weeks, months away, and, and in those weeks or months, I mean, more and more people are going to get infected, right? So it's, we have to start extrapolating. We have to start inferring from current data. Just how many cases do we think is possible right now that, that we have active in the United States or whatever country we're talking about, Western country, wherever you're listening from today, right? And let's extrapolate from that. Where are things heading from here? Well, first of all, as some people I think have figured out, this is something that could last a period of months, two to three months, this lock down this less movement, quarantine, whatever you want to call it, two to three months. Could last longer um, if, if people do enough to cut back on movement and contacts with people outside of their house and etc. It could be less than that. It could be more on the two-month side of things. It could be a month and a half, a month. We'll see. But there's always the risk of, of restarting this pandemic. You know, as laid out in this this recent article by the Imperial College or, or study, that's that's a very real risk or maybe even likelihood, depending on how you look at things. Uh, that that once one pandemic goes away, once people come out of hiding, 
it starts all over again if there's any active cases in that area. And so this could be up, you know, 12 months, 6 months, 18 months that we have to kind of keep dealing with this until we get a very effective treatment, a vaccine or herd immunity or some combination thereof. So what does this look like? Well, in in maybe a, a one-month period, two-month, three-month period, maybe longer, maybe less, here in the United States, I think it's a reasonable estimate of potentially up to 50% of individuals infected. It could be certainly much higher than that, but if we go with just 50%, uh, that's a lot. You know, here in the United States, that's upwards of 150 million individuals. And if we're looking at something like um, death rate, you know, let's say this happens over a relatively short period of time, puts a greater strain on our healthcare system, fewer people get, you know, a lower percentage of people that need ventilators or hospital beds or oxygen get it because just it's so overwhelmed. We could be looking at a death rate maybe up to 2%, maybe higher. It's hard to say. I don't want to throw out the number too high because I know that there's a lot of people that are asymptomatic or, or very mild symptoms and are just not being caught with current tests and whatnot, but up to 2%. It could be 1%. It could be half a percent. Regardless, you, you still end up with a pretty high number of people dead. Up to 2% dead, you're looking at over 3 million individuals dead here in the United States if 50% were infected. And you can play around with those numbers all you want, but it still paints a pretty bleak picture. And then there's also, of course, all the other individuals that may end up dead or with a very poor medical outcome because of this overload of our healthcare system. I'm talking about people that end up in a car crash, people with heart attacks and strokes because those still happen during a pandemic, etc. Um, maybe they have to be diverted to a, a hospital that's further away and therefore their prognosis is much more poor um, much worse, or uh, they go to the hospital with a heart attack and, and they leave with coronavirus, right? It could be any of those outcomes, right? But but definitely worse than what it would be under normal circumstances. And and the other thing to understand here is, you know, with some of the recent news announcements about things like uh, chloroquine, you know, potential treatment for this, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, um, azithromycin for the bacterial infections that may coincide with it, um, even with treatment, this can still be very bad. They're still very deadly. Those treatments are not well studied. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up showing that they may work for mild to moderate cases in some cases, but for individuals that are more um, severely sick, severely impaired pulmonary function, it may do little to, to save them. We'll see. It still has to be studied. But could still be very bad. Plus, you know, if you look outside your own country, outside of the first world or the Western world, if you look to places like Africa, Southeast Asia, um, South America, Central America, etc., uh, those places are very prone to this illness um, because their healthcare systems are, are even more lacking than what we have in the United States. Uh, or, or elsewhere, in terms of testing, in terms of beds, in terms of ventilators, in terms of these medications, which may potentially help. And somehow I doubt that that the U.S. or the U.K. or a lot of European countries are going to say, you know, I'm going to let the fire burn on my own house while I try and put out the one on my neighbor's house. That's not generally how this works. And so those countries may be really on their own with really limited 
support outside from outside, whether it's the WHO or a country or whatever. And a vaccine, um, many vaccines are, are in the uh, pipeline, but they're still many, many, many months away. We have to ramp up production. We have to deliver those vaccines, and, and we haven't even found an effective one yet, to my knowledge. So, And then finally, in terms of, of the actual illness itself, the virus, there's always the risk of mutation. It's mutated already. It mutates with almost every generation, it seems like. You know, genomic sequencing would show that. A lot of those are really non-consequential. But we do have two strains now. I think it's the L and the S strain, if I remember correctly, that have shown that they, uh, you know, one is more transmissive and potentially more lethal than the other, right? But that could get, more mutations could occur. And it could go both ways, right? Mutations can cause it to be less lethal, less transmissive. But if there is a, Trans, if there is a uh, mutation that causes it to be more transmissive, to, to bring up that R0 number, make it survive longer in the air or on surfaces, or more easily penetrate the body's defenses, then you know that that strain is more likely to proliferate than, than the one that's less transmissive, right? Makes sense. Pretty bleak outlook. And again, it, it doesn't have to be that bad, but we're certainly trending in that direction. Um, domestically, uh, one of my concerns is freedoms, liberties. And and for me personally, in terms of travel, in terms of, of my outings, I'm fine with self-restricting. I don't enjoy being told what to do by the government. But that's not a that's not my number one concern right here. When the government says don't leave your house, you know, don't you know limit your travel outside your house, limit gatherings over X amount of people and whatnot. I don't like those. I mean, that's, you know, strictly speaking, that's a violation of some you know, constitutional rights. And that's a concern for me. But I know personally that I, there's people that I'm exposed to every day of my life that are in the high risk category for this illness, high risk of ending up in the hospital or dead. And therefore, I'm going to restrict my behavior. I'm going to modify my behavior based on their risk factors, not my own. Right, and so there's nothing really that the government's saying that I wouldn't do anyways, based on the information I have, um, and and to some extent I get where the government's coming from in terms of trying to stop this spread. Um, however, there's I think some restrictions that have or will occur that will be unnecessary. Uh, restrictions on freedom of speech, restrictions on. Things like gun rights, right? Those things are, are always things that governments are looking to restrict. What's the old saying? You know, never let a crisis go to waste, right? Um, I think that this can be something that the government uses to restrict rights long term beyond just the, the confines of this pandemic. And, and I think it can also be a, in a legitimate pandemic and not a manufactured crisis by the government, right? I think those two things are not mutually exclusive, and I think they're both actually quite true right now. That's one of my concerns long-term, and I think it's something that you should absolutely be paying attention to. Um, also, here in the United States, and th this is true for a lot of other countries, we have an election coming up. I think this is going to really throw a wrench in, in, in those gears. I think this is going to really call the the legitimacy of the election into question, no matter which way it goes. Both parties are always looking for a reason to delegitimize a president or senators or an election itself. 
and and we saw that in 2016. We saw it before that in terms of legal voting, or you know, the, the Russian the Russians ran ads on Facebook that made me vote for Trump. I mean, whatever. I mean, there's a thousand and one different ways that that politicians and the media can try and call into question the results of an election, even beforehand, and they're going to jump on that. And I think some of that's well founded. I think there's some reason to be skeptical of election results and whatnot, um, but. But ultimately, it's going to, I think, really be ramped up this election more so than in the past because of the effects of this pandemic, as well as I think the fact that this has already caused an increasing amount of division here in this country, at least at the political level. I think community, family level, this could hopefully bring people closer, bring people together. But the political level, I'm, I'm not so hopeful, and I think it's going to cause further division and if we look beyond the confines of our own borders, we look geopolitically, I think this increases the risk of conflicts. I don't know what type of conflict that might look like. Are we going to go to a war with, with Iran? Despite the fact that they've been hit maybe the worst of any country? I don't, I don't know. How does North Korea react to all of this? Does this affect Chinese relations with with? Um, Taiwan is it's it's hard to to predict all of those things, but it certainly adds to the risk. I think it it it, it increases the likelihood of major geopolitical conflicts occurring. Um, the blame game will go on, right? The idea that China sat on this for too long, which they did. I mean, they suppressed um, the truth about this early on from from many Chinese doctors that were sounding the alarm on this, threw them in jail basically, silenced them, um, and then had to. Uh, to, to come to terms with the fact that they let this pandemic spread far longer than they should have. Um, and that blame, I think, is, is warranted. But you also have to understand that if you're going to throw blame at a country uh, for on the, on the grounds that they didn't take it seriously enough with the information that they had, well, I think if, if that's the threshold for blame, I think that our own country here in the United States, and I'm sure many other European countries, Western countries, countries the world over, um, should also take some of that blame as well. And that's, you know, that's as far as I'll go on that topic. Uh, I think the oil, what's happening to the oil market right now, because of this this glut in addition to uh, decreasing demand, that's going to, to I think, restructure things like, like uh, the Middle East power structure, the global power structure. I think it has a huge impact on things like the petrodollar, all things that, that I would be concerned about, things that I think will will happen as a, side effect of this coronavirus, this pandemic. Financially and monetarily speaking, I think we're going to see a major devaluation of currencies. Right now, we're seeing a huge move up in currency, or specifically the dollar. All the other currencies are sort of falling in value relative to the dollar, or at least that's been the case over the last week or so. But but ultimately, when you see government move into the realm of more QE, lower interest rates, all of these other acronyms to try and support up markets, inject liquidity, and on top of that you have government spending money, uh, helicopter money, checks to every American. Those things are ultimately going to lead to inflation and, and the devaluation of currencies. That's ultimately going to be the outcome of that. We're going to see huge fiscal packages, billions, trillions of dollars to try and rescue the economy, to alleviate this problem, to, to falsify demand. By, by basically printing money because all that spending by the federal government is going to be backed by the full faith of, of the Federal Reserve. They're going to buy that debt, right? But that's inflationary. That's monetization of debt. That is 
MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, right? Um, but additionally, you know, I think it's a done deal here. We're going to have a recession at least, not a depression, because of the decreased economic activity due to this coronavirus. But I think we're also going to have uh, a long-lasting economic impact from this. Not so much just results from people not being able to go to work, not getting their wages, demand falling, but also the fact that perhaps the biggest financial bubble in world history is in the process of popping right now. And that's going to cause huge dislocations uh, across the board in, in the global economy. And it's only going to be exacerbated by central banks and government's insistence on trying to prop up the whole system, try and blow air into this balloon that already has a hole in it, a hole other than where that air is coming in from. So, so this is a, it's, it's, it's going to be a disaster, I think. And I think it extends far beyond just people not going to work or, or school or, or demand falling because everyone's staying at home, right? I think we're going to see in the near future massive bailouts for corporations. We're going to see more quantitative easing. We're going to see more checks to Americans. We're going to see this internationally as well. And that all is a recipe for more devaluation of currencies and... And, and really worsening this problem of this this bubble. Let's let's cut our losses. Let's 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 let's, let's let this bubble blow up. I think that's would be in the best interest of, of the U.S. government, Federal Reserve, but it's ultimately not what they're going to do. Um, and then finally, at the societal level, I, I think there's a huge risk here. Depending on where you live, depending on your own areas, culture, etc. I think there's a real risk here of, of sort of a breakdown of the rule of law. On, on one hand, you're going to have probably tight quarantines or, or tight restrictions on travel in your own town, potentially. We've already seen that in California, and I think California is probably just the beginning. But on the other hand, I think certain crimes are become, going to become more rampant. People, when they are in these types of situations, tend to become desperate those that um, maybe are, are hardwired to, to commit crimes are going to be more likely to do so when they see other people are in a vulnerable position, when they see that maybe law enforcement does not have the presence that they had in the past, when they see that maybe they can more easily get away with crimes because they're already going to be wearing a face mask. Um, breaking the rule of law is a very real risk here. Crime is a very real risk, ranging from... You know, burglary or, or fraud or whatever to to much more serious problems in terms of, of do I mean use your imagination right and then you add on to that you know already this push for for releasing prisoners from from uh, prisons because prisons could be a, a huge source of outbreak and, and you know, some are going to just be inhumane to keep them there um, that's a that's a big problem too. Not to say I'm totally against it. I mean, here in the United States, we imprison a lot of people that probably shouldn't be in prison. White-collar crimes, yeah, they probably deserve being there. But a lot of these are nonviolent offenders. And I'm not so worried about them. But but I think still, you know, I mean, it's... Across the board, I think you're going to have a lot of nonviolent offenders, white-collar crimes, drug crimes, etc., that, when released, aren't going to cause any issues. But there's going to be that 1 in 10 
that one in 20 that will see this this chance at freedom as an opportunity to, well, again, prey on the vulnerable, right? See this as an opportunity to, to escape the, you know, clutches of the law, right? Violate whatever um, restrictions they are to have on their movement as, as, you know, prisoners that are temporarily being released. And, and I think when people are put in that situation, when they're already running from the authorities, I think they're much, much more likely to do crimes that maybe previously they hadn't because they were, you know, quote unquote, nonviolent offender, right? Uh, add to that, you know, potentially limited emergency services, emergency services stretched thin. And I think the, the safety of your family is something you have to consider, the safety of your own house, the safety of yourself when you're out and about, um, I think it's, you know, again, the, this breakdown of rule of law is probably just going to get worse before it gets any better. And then finally, another thing to consider long term because of the the impact of this pandemic as well as the financial impacts is is breakdown of supply chains. This is maybe not as likely right now, but again, it's still a real risk that food in particular, but also some other you know really important consumer goods, that those supply chains could really fall apart. Maybe it's because people just aren't going to, into work because they're they're potentially sick, or they're afraid to get sick. Um, work being a place where they you know, manufacture cereal, or or maybe work as a farm, right? But but I think the breakdown of supply chains in terms of foods and goods, you know, too much. I think you know when the government says not to worry about something, I tend to worry a bit about it, or I, I tend to be a bit concerned about it. <clears throat> and when the government says that the the food, the supply chains for food are secure, that everything's as normal and whatnot, and, and that we don't need to be panic buying right now, I don't know. Maybe it's just in my nature to be a bit skeptical of that, right? And, and it's one of my concerns that we could see a major breakdown of supply chains for some of these different goods, some of these foods. And, and again, I think that drives on that point that that probably should prepare for that as if that may occur in the near, near future. And that, that may be a bit of a longer term thing. I mean, we, it's true that there are warehouses right now full of these foods that may be sold out on shelves. And it's just a matter of delivering them to those stores. But that's right now, right? We need to start acting as though we're a month or two months into the future. And we need to start extrapolating in terms of what things will be like a month or two into the future. Because I think that gives us a better better understanding of, of what's going on right now. As I said, started off by saying, you know, the current case count is a snapshot of the past, right? And I think the same is true for things like supply chains and whatnot, the data from the government or whatever. It's all a snapshot of the past. And we need to almost assume, we have almost a duty to assume that, that that's outdated information and if we're going to extrapolate that information, things are likely to get much worse in the future. And that the future, to some extent, isn't right now. It's just so that the data hasn't caught up yet. So I so hope you all have you know, made your preparations. I know some people are still, um, still skeptical. And that's fine. I'm not going to address that today. Right? I did yesterday, and I'm probably just going to leave it at that for the most part going forward. Because it's frustrating, right? Um, but, but this is a serious pandemic, and I, and I hope you're taking it seriously. 
doesn't mean you're going to die. But a lot of people probably will. A lot of people definitely will. So, so as always, I'd like to thank every one of you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast. And God bless.